Behold! The sword of power. Excalibur. Welcome to the Oh Gosh, Oh Golly, Oh Wow podcast, the podcast where we talk about the Marvel comic series Excalibur and nothing but Excalibur every week for 126 plus weeks. This week in episode 30, we're discussing Excalibur number 29, Dream a Little Dream. And it sure is a comic. I don't know if I <laughs> comic, but I'm looking forward to talking about it anyway, especially the scene where Nightmare, Rachel, and Alex Power merge into the form of a single humanoid horse. Anyway, Excalibur number 29 was originally published in September 1990, and the creative team is Michael Higgins and Seth Crutchkow on writing. Took two people to write this one. Chris Wozniak on pencils, Joseph Rubenstein on inks, Glennis Oliver on colors, Tom Orzachowski on letters, and Terry Kavanaugh on editing. Your wisdom has forged this ring. Hereafter, so that we remember our bonds, we shall always come together in a circle to hear and tell of deeds good and brave. I will build a Round table where this fellowship shall meet. And a hall about the table. And a castle about the hall. And I will marry. (laughs) And the land will have an heir to wield Excalibur. Knights of the round table. another pod friends reunion today and we're very excited about that i will introduce our guest in a moment but first the regular cast i am dr anna Bapard. i write lots of stuff about gender and sexuality and comics and other things for academic places and smarty pants public places like shelf dust and the middle spaces and comics xf i'm also kurt wagner's unofficial pr manager and while i'm not usually that excited to talk about kurt or anyone else in excalibur when they're being drawn by wozniak i am legitimately excited to discuss this issue some bad comics are bad because they're boring but this entire comic is basically a fever dream, quite literally, and that's not boring. I'm hoping that we can have some fun with it. Uh, Mav, tell the listeners a little bit about yourself. Hi, I'm Christopher Maverick, but you can call me Mav. And um, I didn't write a clever intro for myself this time because I literally just got in the door from like having to be at work. Uh, <laughs> 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 but it doesn't matter because this issue is not clever. It does not matter at all. Uh, <laughs> and I'm, I have so many thoughts about this. Um, this is a crossover of, one of, of two of my favorite comic books from this time period, um, Excalibur and Power Pack. Literally two books that I love and I do not love what happened here. Here. So, <laughs> um, um, I have so many thoughts. 
blah, blah, blah. I teach literature and cultural studies at like a whole bunch of schools in Pennsylvania, United States of America. I'm the host of Vox Popcast. Move on. <laughs> yeah, I do want to get into the discussion of this comic, so we will move on. <laughs> Andrew, could you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself? Hi, I'm Andrew DeMann. I'm a person who has read Uncanny X-Men Annual number 11, which is a beautiful story in which characters each get their wildest dreams, and it's deeply insightful of character and is the exact antithesis of this comic. (laughs) Uh, And therefore, I'm having problems reconciling that these two things exist in the same superhero universe. <laughs> oh man, going hard on this they, issue already. <laughs> they do, they do not exist in the same superhero issue. I, I have they they do not. This is not a real comic. I can't forget yes. the horse boy. <laughs> yes, yes, we would all like to forget that, <laughs> but we will be talking about it. Oh yeah. The, the regular cast is joined, as I mentioned, by a guest who's a very good friend of one of us and who I know a little bit as well and have been lucky enough to do a few previous podcasts with. The pod is elated to welcome co-host of Vox Popcast, the one, the only, Wayne Wise. Welcome, Wayne. Hey, Anna, Mav, Andrew. Thanks for having me. Hey. Long time no here. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's probably been days, right? Hours, yeah. even. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Well, let's tell our. Technically, we could frame this podcast as a battle of two podcasts. Versus three panel contrast. Oh, my goodness. That's true. Wow. Well, contest of champions. (laughs) I I love that idea, and we might resort to that depending on how much we have to say about this comic book. Not it on defending it. Not it. Before we get into that, let's tell the listeners a little bit about Wayne. So Wayne is an independent comic scholar and freelance academic with a BA in history and an MA in clinical psychology. He's taught comics courses at the University of Pittsburgh and Chatham University, as well as giving multiple presentations and lectures at other colleges and libraries. He worked in comics retail at the Eisner-nominated Phantom of the Attic in Pittsburgh for 22 years. He wrote music and comics-based articles for several local news mags and a couple of now-defunct national magazines. In 1993, he and his business partner slash collaborator Fred Wheaton received Received Peter Laird's Exer? Er- Zurich. Zurich. Peter Laird's Zurich grant and self published the comic book Grey Legacy. Yes, Wayne. No, that that was an important thing 25 years ago, and now it's lost to history thanks to the internet and Kickstarter. But anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Royne was also briefly an anchor for a couple of miniseries from Malibu Graphics. His most recent project is as writer and anchor for the comic book series Hutz Pow, published by the Holocaust Center of Pittsburgh, telling the real-life story of Holocaust survivors. He once served as the resident comic scholar for the Pittsburgh Tunesium, where he was also on the board. And yes, he's also the co-host of Vox Popcast. That's a great podcast. I, yeah, I listen yeah. to that. <laughs> now, Wayne, obviously we know you know your comics and we know that you know Mav very well, but I'd love to hear a little bit about your relationship and how you got your podcast started. Do you guys want to do the origin of Vox Popcast for our listeners? I'm struggling today. Uh, I guess in general, my my own personal origin story is I, I don't remember not reading comics. Mom read to me as a child. I was born about a month and a half before Fantastic Four number one came out. So oh, wow. so I, I'm old and, and, and part of the Marvel Universe. Um, 
<laughs> it guided my life from that point on. Um, and and your mom read to me incessantly, and comics were part of that. And so I don't have that story of what's your first comic that you remember. Uh, they, they have always been there. Learn mm-hmm. to read from them. Uh, somewhere along the line, I inherited a box of comics from an older cousin that had some of the earlier Marvels in it. Nothing. Like there was an Iron Man number one in there. There was also a lot of Tales to Astonish and Strange Tales and that sort of thing. Things that sort of predated my own you know, buying stuff off the rack. But uh, it was a really great introduction to that stuff. And I've, I've never stopped. So And through various things, you know, working in comics and writing and drawing, that sort of thing, I started working Phantom of the Attic in the late nineties, where uh, Mav was a customer at the time. Uh, you, yep. you, you were you were what? You were still a CMU student at that point. Were you still uh, a student at that point, or? Well, when you okay, I started shopping at Phantom when I moved to Pittsburgh in ninety two. Okay. You started working there in ninety seven. Yeah, I was still a student because um, I went uh, for six years um, originally. So yeah, we would have met. Probably around whenever you started working. There. Yeah, yeah. Probably the first Wednesday I worked, I met you. Uh, yeah, yeah. It would, would be it would be my guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and just over the years, you know, like you do, and we're in a comic shop that long with regular customers, we just developed a friendship that somewhere along the line, Mav invited me to a party at his house. At which point, it became a friendship outside of the store as well. Mm-hmm. And over the years, given who Mav and I are, we would just stand in the store and talk a lot <laughs> yeah. about all this stuff that we're into. And uh, I'm sure that I had coworkers who wanted to throw us both out a window or down the steps <laughs> um, and, and probably other customers who did as well. But a lot of people, strangely enough, found us fascinating. And they and they kept saying to us, "You guys should record this. You should do a podcast." And, and we were like, "Why? Yeah. <laughs> why, why, uh, why would we do that?" And voila, three years later, here we are doing a podcast. Ah, <laughs> oh. I love that. So I mean, so how long has Vox Podcast been going? Three years? Yeah, a little over, yes, a little over three years. A little over three years. <laughs> Hundred and seventy six weekly episodes as of wow this week. dang 177 something i mean well it's weird because like like we're at 33 like, i think yeah yeah <laughs> like like we record out of order and early so published our 176 i think and i think when this episode comes out we'll be at like 182 yeah and, and we also as of this point we have five total co-hosts so yeah. we're, we're all bringing different ideas to it none mm-hmm. of us are on every show Mav's probably on more than most yeah but but none of us have been on every show so it it spreads out a little bit which is good so yeah well yeah there's five regular hosts so wayne and i are both on show one and two i think i think wayne missed his first show at number three and i missed like show number four so it's always been (laughs) so it's always been like sort of a floating cast and um that was like that was the idea it was supposed it was always supposed to be rather than it's not not an interview show it's a roundtable show so we have a discussion every week about something pop culture and the entire point was who showed up at the bar this week you know it's very it can be very different and that's what we love about it i think the well no i know that the first time i met both of you was at the popular culture association conference like Mm -hmm. i don't know like a while ago now a couple years ago yeah yeah um and you were doing a vox podcast live at the conference and i thought that that was so cool and i got to come on like several months later and that was like we didn't have this podcast yet we still had three panel contests but i wasn't like a guest on a lot of podcasts then and i like felt monumentally cool being asked to come on vox podcast as, as i recall talk about golden age comics and my love of golden age namor yeah. oh yes that's that's pretty much how the show works. <laughs> we, we have a, uh, Wayne Wayne will say we we have a lot of um 
I don't, it's not a complaint. We're blessed with a lot of smart friends, you know, a lot of because of what we do. And it's always, you know, the academic ones, people sort of get it because they're like, oh, well, you know, I study this and of course we'll want you to come in. But then we all, we also have, you know, quite frequently we have non-academics as guests <laughs> and people are like, well, could I be on the show? And Wayne and I are like, yes, absolutely. Yes, you, have, <laughs> you, you know, the less work we have to do <laughs> in order to book the show. Yeah. <laughs> so that's how, that's how that show works. Did you take on Monica Giraffo recently as a regular panelist as well? Yes. Or am I misremembering that? Okay. No. Nope, she's she's the newest uh, she's the newest regular host. After she was on this show, I don't even know how she knows all of this. After she was on this show, um, she wanted to be on on Vox Pop, so I just put her on the list of potential guests. And then when we were doing a show, one of our other hosts, Katya, went, wanted to do a show on American Girl dolls, and she was like, "Don't you know somebody who like does fashion history?" It's like I do know somebody who does fashion history. So Monica got to come on for that, and then she like volunteered to be on for a show on like her research, which is on fashion history, and then. And I needed someone who wanted to talk about Fast and Furious because um, Wayne would would have would rather die. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, know, I know she's been rewatching them, so yes. And and, and Hannah would rather die. Uh, so we, we just we, we were we were we were low on people. So I posted about. It. She's like, "Oh, can I do that one? Can I do that one?" And then it was just the rest of us were like, "Do you want to just stay? Do you want to just keep it?" Yeah, yeah and, and, <laughs> and she she meshed really really well just in terms yeah. of personality and that sort of thing. So it was mm-hmm. very smooth. Yeah. So so yeah, she's been on as we record this show like two months now. That's awesome. I love that. That's like a pod friends reunion mm-hmm. extending outwards. We're getting people yeah. on the Gosh Golly Wild podcast and then integrating them back into Vox Pop. I love it. Mm-hmm. I love it. Yeah. Wayne, before we move on to the mm-hmm. issue summary, can you tell me a little bit specifically about your history with Excalibur? Like, were you reading this series from the beginning? I, and is I, it a particular I, favorite of yours? I, I, I was. I um, In that box of, of comics I referenced, there were a couple of the early X-Men, a couple of the Neil Adams issues, a couple of the reprint sequence. Uh, I had bought Hulk 181 off the rack. I bought Giant Size X-Men number one off the rack because Wolverine was on the cover. I had a subscription and had them being mailed to my house as of issue 98. So, yeah, I've been with the new x-men specifically pretty much from the beginning by the by the mid 80s i my interest in that had gone away some for a wide variety of reasons i was reading a lot of the more independent books uh direct sales stuff kind of thing i was reading excalibur from the beginning uh i love alan davis's art that was a, a big draw for me by the issue we're gonna be talking about i think i was gone it was a combination of mid 80s i was in grad school lack of money lack of time and my interest going in different places pretty much when when alan davis left the book so did i and 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 i've read from working in retail for many many years i have read large chunks of it since then but still you know to be honest never the entire run i i hadn't read this issue until (laughs) just, just 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 a few days ago and so thank you for this experience. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe we'll go to the issue summary and get into some of your first impressions of this issue then, because I'm anxious to talk about that. So I know we have lots of lovely listeners reading along with the pod. We'd love you to pieces. Thank you ever so much. But as usual, let's orient ourselves with a brief plot summary. Excalibur number 29, Dream a Little Dream, opens in media res with Excalibur in the middle of investigating a mysterious spaceship hanging over the lighthouse. Nightcrawler teleports aboard the ship where he finds a collapsed horse-like alien who isn't an alien at all. It's Alex Power, who's currently in the form of a 
Chimalian horse for reasons we may get into later. Anyway, Alex knows Kurt, and once Kurt recognizes Alex, we get the ball rolling on the plot. Alex tells Kurt that while visiting the Institute of Psychic Research in Britain, in an attempt to find a cure for his gravely ill mother, the whole Power Pack family was knocked out with gas and captured. Alex escaped using his cloud form, but passed out once he got back to his smart ship. Kurt, of course, agrees to help Alex rescue his family. Shortly thereafter, Excalibur arrive at the Institute of Psychic Research. While Rachel, Megan, and Brian enter disguised as medical staff and a patient, Nightcrawler and Alex sneak in. It doesn't take long for Alex and Kurt to locate Alex's family locked in a room under heavy guard. But just as Alex and Kurt call the rest of the team for help, the team's cover is blown. Rachel, Megan, and Brian find themselves confronting the true forms of the supposed medical staff. They're all enormous demons. A fight ensues, but more gas is pumped in and everyone's knocked unconscious and captured. When we next see each member of Excalibur, they're strapped into machines that cause them to have nightmares so that the demon's master, the villainous nightmare, can feed off of them. I won't get too deep into the substance of the nightmares here because I want to leave it for our convo, but in brief, Rachel dreams she's a hound, Brian dreams he's lost everyone's respect, Megan dreams she's rejected by both Brian and Kurt, Kurt is similarly rejected by everyone he cares about, while Alex's dream is the weirdest one of all. He confronts Nightmare directly along with Rachel, who's transformed into a giant humanoid horse resembling Alex's current form. As Nightmare tries to absorb Alex into the horse, Franklin Richards uses his abilities to separate them and takes control of Phoenix to end the nightmares. It's vague, but just go with it. Afterwards, Excalibur wake up at the lighthouse and Power Pack are back on their smart ship. They realize they've all had a series of interconnected dreams, but can't remember why they had them or any of the events leading up to them, which is probably for the best. So hit me with the first impressions, Wayne. What did you make of this comic? Wow. Uh, what you starting out with just that first opening splash page of giant bulky Captain Britain flying right with at me with a tiny head, with a tiny head, and giant bulky Megan flying right at me with a tiny head. Uh, what, what year did this come out? This was ninety. We're in ninety. Yeah. Okay. So okay. So it's it's right in that, and that's the other thing. My my perception of when some of this Marvel stuff came out in the late eighties and nineties is skewed. Like in my brain, Excalibur is earlier than this, but this is this is firmly in that Marvel period of McFarlane and Liefeld and all that yes. kind of stuff. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, I, <laughs> yeah. I, I mean the I the the art I think is just really kind of kind of terrible for Bad. a lot Bad. of reasons. Yeah. Um, for, for very different reasons than I feel that way about a lot of those image guys. There's just, there's some panels too. It's just, and, you know, I, I, with any of this stuff, I try to put that perspective of these guys are working on a monthly deadline and a lot of them are not being paid very well and <laughs> that sort of thing. But, uh, you know, we also had Art Adams, so there you go. Uh, <laughs> well, Art um, Adams never drew a book in time in his life. Well, I'm yeah, and, fan, right. But... Exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> The, the story, yeah, it was you know, the the classic. It was all a dream. We we won't remember any of this. Um, and yeah, that uh, Rachel as a humanoid horse. I I got to that double page spread, and <laughs> let me reiterate. Wow. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Uh, and I guess, you know, in better hands, using Nightmare as a catalyst to dig into characters' fears, mm-hmm. the, the psychological stuff in, in better hands, that's not necessarily a bad idea. I feel certain Claremont could have done something better with this than what we see. But these all feel like just little, yeah, expository 
chunks that really don't have a lot of depth to them. Yeah, I want to kind of go through each character's nightmare and like see what we make of it and whether it's valuable at all. So that's definitely like something <laughs> that we're going to do. Mab or Andrew, any other rants or raves you want to get off your chest before we get into some more focused discussion of this issue? I, I am going to rant about Megan at some point, but I'm going to let it come up organically and just <laughs> let it hover over this podcast like this. <laughs> I'm looking forward to that. <laughs> Okay, so when when we were booking this particular episode, Anna asked me, she's like, do you think Wayne would do, the, do this one? And she's like, for some reason, I guess you had read, read ahead and you were like, did, she, and you sent mail to our chat, our, our, our host chat saying, did anybody read Power Pack? Is Alex Power a horse at some point? And I'm like, yeah, I can, <laughs> I, I can confirm at this point in continuity, Alex was a horse. Well, and something I had forgotten <laughs> until reading this is that they had changed powers because I'm reading Alex and then he turns into a cloud i'm like wait no that's jack and then my brain ah, had, okay my brain so, <laughs> my brain had to reboot 35 yes. years and oh my and, God. and there is good and bad that comes from that all right so i, I guess i should fill in because i, I well, my, like... my first question was going to kind of be about the history of power pack so like yeah. i was going to give it to either either you mab or andrew either <laughs> one of you and we can have you both contribute some yeah. stuff about the context if you want I, I feel like people need to be filled in because there's no, I don't know that there's a lot of overlap between Excalibur fans and Power Pack fans. They are, they are very different books that I enjoyed for very different reasons. We don't need to do too much of the Power Pack history, but the basic premise of Power Pack is that there are these four children. I'm going to do them from oldest to youngest, Alex, Julie, Jack, and Katie Power. Um, there are four children who meet an alien who has crash landed on Earth, Green Lantern style. If you know the origin of Hal Jordan, the Green Lantern, the same origin. They meet a, or they meet an alien who crash lands on Earth. The alien is dying, and the alien bequeaths his powers to the Power Children. Each one gets one of the gets one power, and they become Power Pack. They become superheroes, and then they eventually meet up with the aliens people chameleons the alien is shaped like a horse the chameleon aliens look like horse like horses so they become friends with them along the way they also become friends with franklin richards who is the child of reed and sue um richards the mr fantastic of the fantastic four and and the invisible woman and franklin becomes the fifth member of power pack and they have lots of adventures and it's delightful and cute and at some point um you find out that much like white whitey was the alien's name whitey gave his powers to the power children turns out under certain circumstances can switch powers and they had so they were they their powers had gotten confused a couple times and they're not very good at giving powers to each other but it can happen so that's why their powers are goofy and mixed up as as wayne had said along the line somewhere the power pack fell into the hands of a young writer named michael higgins who fans of our show will know is the man who wrote this issue of excalibur and he is the dedicated fill-in writer for lots of excalibur and unlike the nth man story that we did a couple of episodes ago michael higgins just decided to do a crossover on his own here you know he had written the story where alex inexplicably starts losing his hair and then growing other hair in strange places and i think he's trying to do a puberty metaphor oh god but but it's weird and bad and and like alex had already gone through puberty under previous writers and like it was better so alex just suddenly inexplicably becomes a horse in issue 60 of power Pack. Well, and, and to be fair just for the people who, who can't see this they're kind of humanoid horses it's not just straight up a horse yeah it's, it's like, a, like, a, like, a, like it's like he's like that a bipedal sort yeah. of a bipedal horse he's a man with a horse head 
Yeah. Or, or not a man. He's 14. He's, or he's probably 15 at this point. He, he, he's, he's bottom about halfway through the play. Yeah. And yeah. And he's and got he, horse feet too. And he wears those yeah, little shoes, like the, my little ponies used to have. Yeah. That was like my favorite, my little pony accessory. And mm-hmm. they always got lost. So yeah. So Alex, Alex becomes a horse. Everyone's mortified at this point. The power parents do not know that their kids have powers. Um, at one point they did. And then their memories got erased. And so the kid, the parents did didn't know the kids had powers, so they were always adventuring in secret. So he becomes a horse, and the father sees, oh, God, my, my son's a horse. Well, this is crazy. Um, and then the mother sees her, sees her kid's a horse, and this blows her mind, and she passes out and faints, and that's the end of issue 60. Um, like, their their mom is unconscious, and what what do we do? And then issue 61, aliens attack, and the Fantastic Four come and help them. And then issue 62, Power Pack is canceled. Power Pack is canceled, and they sh- and the as the Power family goes into space in order to find a cure for Alex being a horse. Clearly, there was supposed to be more to the story. There, It's very obvious that Michael Higgins is setting up something with this whole big story plot line in issues 60 and 61. And no, no one liked this. This is a bad story. As bad as some of the stuff that we complain about on this show is, this was a bad, horrible story story that made no sense so they canceled it and they're like power pack will be back soon and then they brought it back for the power pack christmas special later that year written by someone else entirely and alex's horsepower problem is dealt with four pages in when they get to the aliens and the aliens are like oh uh that's not alex uh that is a uh biological clone that evil aliens put there that turned into a horse let's not think about it here's the real oh, alex. Wow. okay moving along it's literally just dispensed with it's wow. like it, it gets wiped away in the I, power pack christmas special these, inside these of days they just wouldn't even acknowledge it no they would just move on yeah and then the and then the rest of the story i mean it's a double-sized issue so it's like 40 60 pages and then the horse stuff is just blown away in the first six <laughs> just like just like get this over with as quickly as possible no i spent i spent no time thinking about that the first time i read this comic like a decade ago <laughs> yeah, i was just yeah. like ah this happened in comics that i wasn't reading i'm assuming it makes sense don't care well i also <laughs> yeah. don't really care about this no. issue so it, yeah. it mattered i'm it clearly <laughs> mattered to michael higgins it's funny it's just just an aside for a listener michael higgins is also the name of a person that wayne and i know <laughs> Yeah. no in real life yeah 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 yeah, yeah. And, and that's it when you first said that i'm like wait no no, like, no that's not yeah, him yeah. Um, <laughs> mike higgins um was my roommate for many years so it's, it's oh. the person that we actually know in real life but but not this mike higgins um so so um but yeah you're michael just H- you're just covering for him because yeah um, <laughs> but this michael higgins who wrote this story was also writing power pack at the time he was the final writer of the original run of power pack and clearly he was trying to like get some synergy going from his two comics and like get like a, a crossover going and it doesn't happen because they canceled his book like he probably was trying to do something here he probably was going to like have nightmare come back and and like trying to like bootstrap some grand adventure for power pack because power pack never goes to europe like that doesn't happen like in their continuity in their book um he's got like a three issue aborted art and Mm -hmm. they go from downtown new york to uptown new york over the course of like two issues and that's it there's no point when they could have gone to england to have this storyline and certainly not and taking franklin with them because he he gets separated from them at the end of issue 62 because it's clearly like a wrap this up we're canceling this book 
kind of situation. Well, can I ask, and I'll put it to you, Andrew, like in terms of the appeal of Power Pack, like it's never been a series that really appealed to me because if I'm being honest, I don't really like reading superhero comics starring kids. (laughs) And I feel bad saying that in a way because it makes it seem like I don't like wholesome things. And I I do like wholesome (laughs) things. And I do, well, I've never wanted kids, but I wouldn't say I don't like kids. I like other people's kids. They're fine. Amen. (laughs) (laughs) But at the same time, like really, what it comes down to for me is kind of like superhero comics are a lot about the sexiness for me so like reading one starring kids I'm not going to get that so it's just not really for me but I wanted to ask you Andrew like what do you think is the appeal of having like a superhero comic starring children like even though Power Pack's not an X-Men comic it's deeply related to the X-Men line in the sense that it was like Louise Simonson's baby and so like what do you think is the appeal there like what need was this kind of feeding in the market yeah I I think Power Pack's actually really a pivotal book um, apart from what Mav was kind of um, I'm stating or implying it. like it was really good uh, you had Simonson this was a real labor of love for her she pitched it out of nowhere she could have done anything this is what she pitched she brought in June Brigman who is a criminally underrated in- illustrator yes. so, so Power Pack was beautiful beyond yeah. for, our reckoning for a good 40 issues yeah, yeah. <laughs> 50 um, maybe <laughs> But in yeah. terms of like children's literature, th- there's there's two ways you can go with it. The normal way that they go, and we see this in like um, Chronicles of Narnia and stuff like that, is you use your child protagonists in order to produce this fantasy of empowered children, which is thereby appealing to children. Uh, like, like Santa Claus is going to give you a sword and tell you to go fuck somebody up. That's really <laughs> appealing to a 12-year-old, as you'd expect. But the other way you can go is actually Lord of the Rings. Think about the Hobbits, where you actually use the childhood protagonist to create this tremendous sense of vulnerability, uh, thus um, um, amping up the pathos and the gravity to obscene proportions. And Power Pack could do a little of the former, but spent a lot of time doing the latter, particularly in the crossovers with the really dark sort of X-Universe stuff, like Mutant Massacre, Inferno, or Katie Power in Wounded Wolf. These just really intensely dark, holy crap, a child should not be here stories. So I, I think Power Pack did a great job of, of creating these sort of dark stories surrounding child protagonists, which is not super common, uh, and, and really allowed Simonson to, um, I don't know, sort of, sort of create a little bit of trajectory towards some of her later work, uh, where she did make things dark on characters like Ilyana um, whereas in the past I think Marvel was probably looking for just something generically child friendly and this was actually Marvel's first child superhero book so yeah it occupies a really cool unique place in history and that that doesn't make this issue a bigger sell for me it actually makes it more of a diminishment because you've got these two amazing franchises neither of which are coming off really well in this issue yeah that's fair but um well i mean how do we think do we see any of kind of that appeal of kind of like children mixing with an adult space in this particular comic book i mean obviously Ooh. it's not a big part of this comic book because it just isn't a good comic yeah. book but like do we see I, it at all the fact that he's a horse undermines the whole he's mm. a child part of this none of power pack does anything except for alex or franklin Franklin is horribly out of character for who he is in Power Pack and who he is in Fantastic Four at this point. And Higgins is writing Power Pack. He could have done this. I didn't like how he wrote Power Pack either. He wrote, I think, the, I think he's the last seven issues, maybe nine, something like It's not, he's not on it for a long time. So he's doing something different and I did not appreciate it. All the dark stuff that, I mean, like what Andrew's talking about, like having Katie Power, who at the time was explicitly i think not she's a little older here but at the time when she like sort of hooks up with wolverine she's like six 
five mm-hmm. or six and having her dealing with the fact that oh my god i could kill people while she's a terrified kindergartner and tr- come to grips with what does it mean to have the power you know her power is disintegrating things and she is terrified by it it sounds really cool like her her brother jack is nine at this time eight or nine and he's like oh superpowers awesome and katie is five and she doesn't know what to do and it's great it's it, it is an absolutely believable story of a five-year-old trying to come to grips with the i've got to be in this adult world because i can destroy things and i and it matters and then you know um you talked about the sexiness having julie and alex come to grips with their sexuality it's never explicitly dealt with until much later after power back is canceled there's hints towards julie realizing she's a lesbian and which is which is which is played out later she has a relationship with caroline from caroline uh, and runaways. runaways these are these are hints that they're dropping in this book that are very clear if you know what to look for in 1987 and for those who know how to look yeah (laughs) and having but having them deal with these adult problems because you know the superhero world it's this power fantasy of what you want it to be but the superhero world should be terrifying if you actually were put into it as a you know as a five-year-old or a 12-year-old and that's not (laughs) in this book or a 30-year-old or 40-year-old people yeah people have asked that question wouldn't it be great to live in the marvel universe no it'd be terrifying (laughs) i would never sleep Mm -hmm. A recurring nightmare I've had is like having the ability to fly because I just think that that would be the most terrifying. I don't want to be like up in the sky under my own power and just like, I mean, that's just the most horrible thing I can imagine. I don't want it at all. Not at all. But yeah, I mean, is that sort of what we're in theory getting then from like child protagonists? I mean, you've brought up so many interesting things that I agree we're not really like not getting at all here. But I mean, sort of the vulnerability of child protagonists can make us look at the superhero genre, sort of a new way. That seems to be something that you're all kind of yeah. touching on a little bit. Well, I, I just to touch on you know, just history of comic stuff that, you know, the, the idea of you know, they introduced Robin back in 1940, mm-hmm. 39, 1940, whatever, and just the number of kid sidekicks. And at the time, there was this sense of this is for the young readers to have someone to identify with. And, you know, Stan Lee talked about 10-year-olds don't want to identify with other 10-year-olds. They want to identify with the powerful adult, which is why he didn't do kid sidekicks and he started doing Marvel, the, the Marvel Age of stuff, Silver Age stuff. And I, there, I think there are arguments both ways. I think a more jaded point of view is by the 1980s, comics fans were growing up kids weren't reading as many comics there and you know which has continued how do we get kids to read comics let's make a book with kids in it that'll get them in right and that ignores kind of the history of of comics it goes back to the 1940s of people will read this if we put robin in it and that's not necessarily true so mm-hmm. say that may be a jaded, jaded uh economic point of view on on the reasoning behind some of this stuff um, andrew do you know the demo i i don't did i was gonna ask that power pack because because yeah. I was, I mean, I was 16 at this point by by 1990. I was 16, 17. I, and I was reading this, um, or no, I, was, I would have been 16 when it was canceled. And I worked at the store, and I don't remember selling a power pack to a kid, to an actual kid. Mm-hmm. Like, like there were teenagers reading it, there were adults reading it. Again, like like Andrew said, they're in the Munich Massacre. Like, they're dealing with serious <laughs> stuff yeah. that is not kid-friendly, ever. They beat so. Sabretooth. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> 
Yeah, what's your feeling on that, Andrew? Do you think that the comic book, despite sort of having a reputation as being something for kids, do you think it was actually aimed at kids? Do you think kids were actually reading it? Um, yeah, I do think there was a bit of a split audience, but I agree with Mav. I, I think most of the people who were reading, like Marvel wanted it to appeal to kids, but I, I think most of the people who were reading it were, were coming in from sort of the X franchise or were fans of Simonson. I, I think it was drawing more from that pool, and I think tonally that mm-hmm. that shows pretty obviously there's a newer version that's very much an all-ages book that's yeah like much more modern but the original which is weird because it's not clear what marvel universe it exists in because the kids all grew up but then they're inexplicably kids again but the original version is they're it's just not child friendly at all yeah we should also point out that this was one of incredibly few books in marvel or dc at the time that had um, um a female writer and a female illustrator at the same time and i think it was drawing from that demographic as well just in terms of representing an alternative perspective yeah for sure i mean like yeah i it's depressing talking about these things and i'm like boy i wish we could talk about these things with this particular issue and there's really not a lot there to talk about i mean like the yeah. one moment i can think about and it's not even really a very interesting moment is where we have alex in his horse form obviously which he's in throughout this comic having the little moment with nightcrawler where he's like oh man nightcrawler looks different and he's cool like maybe being a horse isn't gonna be so bad and i'm just like i mean it's trying in that one little thought bubble but it's Uh it's not good and and that's like that's like part of the weirdness of it though because like this is higgins trying to establish his place in the continuity right he because he is the alternate writer for excalibur but he is the writer of record right now for power pack and i think he wants to do a thing and he just doesn't have the voice right because alex Mm. up until four or five issues ago alex is a 14 year old boy with his first girlfriend who's like who's literally like he's his his major concern is you know trying to make out he's literally becoming sexually aware and stuff and like his dates keep getting canceled because he has to go off to save the universe that's his worldview and then suddenly it's a very clearly trying to do this weird puberty metaphor which is odd it's just weird that's part of why i don't like it as out of character as all the excalibur people probably seem to anybody who's reading this book with us power pack was out out of character the same way like um franklin richards like it's not clear how old he's supposed to be in here but probably five but he looks like a man half the time (laughs) (laughs) well let's get into some of these dreams because i want to kind of go through these and i think we're going to agree that they don't offer a lot of insight into our characters but let's talk about them anyway and we can complain if we would like about why they don't (laughs) offer insight into our characters and perhaps pitch our own nightmares for these characters based on our (laughs) understanding of them we do that a lot on this show and i'm realizing in my notes that like i forgot to even write down brian's dream because i just forgot about it but we can talk about it. I forgot the Brian stream even existed. He dreams that nobody respects him. He's right. Okay, yeah. moving on. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, well, let's start with Brian's because I was going to start with Rachel's, but maybe we'll come back to it since it ties into like the last dream at the end. But yeah, so Brian dreams that no one respects him while bound in this really weird. That's quite the booty shot. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so he's kind of like got his hands in this like metal thing behind his back and like has some nicely divided, very round butt cheeks in a very interesting pose throughout this sequence. That's the roundest butt I've ever seen. Very round. I mean, that's like the thing that I mostly remember from it, but let's talk about this. (laughs) 
I mean, like starting with you, Wayne, like, I mean, you know, kind of the characters from this mm-hmm. series, you're familiar with the Captain Britain character, like leading up to this. Does this make any sense to you as the nightmare that Brian would I, have? Yeah, on, on some level, yes. The the whole no one respects me kind of thing. I, I do get that. I'm well removed from that era of X-Men in terms of my overall reading. But I, that seems to be an idea that's still playing out. He's appeared in recent X-Men, House of X, whatever all these crossovers are, that x of swords thing that just happened and there still seems to be him but but i'm good enough to do this right you know that seems inherent in his character Mm -hmm. um it's like he's never completely been comfortable in that role saying that based on vague memories of a lot of different stuff no that makes sense but but, uh, so it makes sense to me that that is a fear of his um but yeah this is just like overwrought I guess there's only so much yeah. you can do in six panels on two pages. With, I mean, with they could have these. given him more. That's they just fair. didn't want to. And why? Why? why well, would it's, yeah. <laughs> it's inconsistent what they did give him, though. Like, it says, I value this nation's laws above my own life. No, he doesn't. Yeah. <laughs> he doesn't want to be Captain Britain. I thought that was strange, too. Yeah. That was a strange line to give him. How come he doesn't? Like, isn't, like, the trope of every horror movie about nightmares ever, and, in fact, nightmare you know the character nightmare his history if you get killed in your dreams you die they chopped off his head that's what happens freddy krueger rules yeah i i don't know why freddy krueger rules are not in, in effect here um <laughs> they should be i mean or or don't i mean it's just it's just a weird thing because there's no resolution to this it's not like we see why he gets his head back it's just like oh we killed brian okay moving on because we're not going to talk about it again next time we see him it's just over you know? yeah i mean the, the expression on his face as his head is bouncing away he doesn't look dead to me he looks like he's still reacting in that moment uh, so so i so i don't read him as dead in this i well, let's talk about nightmare for a second i mean his history and power like what he just he feeds off of people's fear in in dreams right i am i yeah that's yeah, his okay. deal yeah sorry yeah, we, yeah, should yeah, just, yeah. We, we, we can say a bit about him if you would like yeah like he is introduced back in uh, strange tales 110 from 1963 i have that written down which is mm. like i didn't just know that off the top of my head although i have read it before yeah. um and he's like I, the first nemesis of dr strange that's the introduction I, of dr I, strange I, as well I, I looked it up. I, I had a copy of Strange Tales 164 that he appears in, in that box of comics I inherited. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm looking at the covers like, yeah, I, like because I knew I read him way back when. But... Yeah, he's Freddy Krueger. That's that's what yeah, he is. Yeah. If, you, okay. if you're familiar yeah. with Freddy Krueger, he's Freddy Krueger. <laughs> he predates Freddy Krueger, but that's the, that's the power set. Yeah, and he's often kind of like a dosex machina kind of character like he'll just a bunch of crazy stuff will happen and then he'll show up and you're like oh nightmare of course and he kind of is used to have these kind of dreams that like people he's going to show up later in excalibur as well like way 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 further along in an issue that is not perfect but is a lot better than this one i think but anyway we'll Mm -hmm. be talking about that for like a year so (laughs) (laughs) we will be seeing him again but yeah with the brian thing if i want to give the scene just like a tiny bit of credit and this is probably going to be meme fan fictioning it like a little bit but like the scene where brian's head is like coming off in the final panel of the sequence he does have a smile on his face as he's presumably dying and that element of it is the one element that i think is interesting because brian as we talked about has this whole thing about like when he dies he gets resurrected because it's his duty to be captain britain they won't let him die and he's had a suicidal 
like ideation like earlier in the comic obviously that's something that's never really left him it's kind of bound up in his depression and his drinking and his behavior and all of these things so I did wonder whether that smile was intentional and that was like one aspect of the scene that's potentially interesting with the Wozniak art it's sometimes hard to decide what's intentional and what's not (laughs) yeah because if if that reading is there then he's happy to have lost his head and mm-hmm. failed against nightmare which i could believe yeah yeah nightmare has yeah, given like him that. his desire here but again as as i often often say you just wrote a better story than what's on this page yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well you can just imagine like how it would be communicated differently like with some more subtlety because even that line like i value its laws above my own life it's like you could read that with different art in a way that he's saying that as a performative thing knowing it's going to result in his death like Mm -hmm. that could totally be a way that this goes but just with this artwork where we're just not getting any of that subtlety that reading is just not present right yeah i mean did we find it interesting at all that like the panel of people judging brian and again i'm I'm reaching i'm trying to get us to have like an interesting (laughs) discussion of this of this scene do we think it's interesting at all that it's his like teammates judging him like does that do anything for us I mean, I I think just as an obvious, it speaks to his fears of I'm the leader of the team and none of them Mm -hmm. respect me. You know, I I think there's a very obvious reading of that, that he thinks they're all judging him all the time anyway. I just I mean, and I hope I never meet michael higgins in person to where he and or actually i don't hope i mean i'm sure he's a wonderful person but like if he listens to the show i just i don't feel like he had an understanding of the characters that he was writing i think that simplistically sure brian's afraid that he's not respected to anybody but i don't think that's deep i think that's literally just the character of brian braddock that's not an interesting take on brian braddock that's just brian braddock like the interesting take is that that was turned up to 11 but we've been doing that for years I, now. A, a feeling I got from this, as someone who's written some comics and, and thinks about structure and storytelling, the fact that we get all these double-page spreads, they're double-page spreads, but they're still essentially only six panels. So in terms of the the economy of storytelling, how much of this was just, oh my god, I have a deadline. <laughs> I, let, let me write half a story and expand <laughs> it into double-page spreads. And, and then, yeah, just draw bigger. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, because it, it, everything feels really rushed i mean if you're going to use two pages for this use two pages for this you know you, you could have given us more depth on every one of these characters every one of these scenarios if you'd given me twice as many panels on the same yeah sa- the same, same pages yeah. yeah yeah because i mean it does this thing where it kind of tries to aestheticize the pages like with this you mm-hmm. know dramatic kind of like a pulse meter thing cutting across the page but like yeah you're right we're getting in the Brian one, yeah, we're getting six panels and like one of them is kind of like a merge of two. So it's just, it's just not a lot that we're getting for like two mm. pages of a 22 page book. All right, let's do the Megan dream. This is yeah. your time, Andrew. This is your time to complain about I've this scene. Okay, go for it, Andrew. I'll just let you take it away. <laughs> okay, so first up, I am going to apologize. I've spent a lot of last week editing together a, a video essay on Megan and Captain Brian. Oh. Captain Brian. Um, so I'm, I'm like more oh. defensive of her than usual go for it but, but first up superficial elements here that, that megan saying i wish i was as beautiful as rachel oh, that's your that. mutant fucking power you can do that now <laughs> <laughs> what are you talking about you can it's be odd. rachel you can be literally even yeah. if you, that, you can be literally you rachel 
you've done it before. <laughs> and B, and this is a thing that I find in Higgins' writing in particular, and I know we're dogpiling Higgins, and I do apologize for that. So I, I'm putting this out as a complaint in terms of consistency, not necessarily quality. It, it contradicts Claremont's iteration of the character that Megan is this like horribly jealous, superficial person. She's not. Her, when her boyfriend, her live-in boyfriend, her partner, we would say, uh, is actively having sex with Courtney Ross. Her comments about Courtney Ross are focused on how Courtney Ross makes her feel about her own insecurities, not, again, kind of this, this, this superficial representation. Megan isn't this, like, classic, jealous other woman in a crappy love triangle. That's not how the character was designed. That's the surface misinterpretation of her through which the depth of the character is revealed. So to have this kind of be represented the way it's represented, it is such a step back. And I'm just, as a fan of Megan, I, I get frustrated because she's set up so powerfully and symbolically, and then other writers keep misinterpreting her and kicking her backward into a grotesque parody of what she actually is and I'm yeah done. no that's completely fair i mean mm -hmm. really like one of the things that i think makes me nervous about megan is just the way that her power is so interesting and yet it is so easily misinterpreted yeah. right and like there are so many ways that we can i mean we talked so many times obviously about megan on this podcast about the ways that her powers are sort of metaphors for different types of female experience and female stereotypes as well but she also allows you to kind of mess with those things by showing like empathy isn't a weakness it's a power things like that right she allows you to mm -hmm. do a lot of subversion through the ways that she embodies stereotypes and yet resists them right exactly. and i just but it's so dangerous because it's so easy to slaughter back into those stereotypical roles like i mean in terms of like shapeshifters right i always think about how genius it is the way they designed Kamala Khan to use her powers in certain ways that, you know, she's yeah. not using them to transform into other people. She's not using them to be more beautiful. They're not sort of tied up in those feminine stereotypes. They're not tied up in duplicity the way Mystique's powers are tied up. She uses them to, you know, expand her body and become somewhat monstrous, right? Megan's powers are sometimes used like that, but because they're tied up in this beauty thing, it's so easy to fall back on that stereotype. And I think that's a danger of the character, but it sucks because as you're saying, Andrew, like her having those powers could allow us to do something really interesting that subverts those things. And yet so often we get something like this. She's not necessarily, I mean, for me, she's a broken person, which is what makes her interesting, right? It's not She's not just interesting because of her power. She's interesting be because she is so emotionally damaged that she she would blame herself when her boyfriend has an affair that's interesting you know and i don't even have a problem with her feeling inferior to rachel if that's it but like it can't be about like she's not stupid it can't be about no. just oh well no one loves me because i'm not pretty you literally know that's the only thing you do like the first the, the most important thing in your origin story is when you stopped being a wolf girl and started being you know a barbie like that was a decision that you made <laughs> so like so like she knows that that's not how she's broken and i'm okay with her being broken but the she's on the broken here, team right that's yeah that's what excalibur is <laughs> right yeah it's just a weird version of it and it's it, it and it's weird that um Higgins writes her as far more aware of her relationship with Nightcrawler than she has. And we've talked about this yeah, before. Where she, Anna, you've even said, I'm, and I agree with you, I'm okay with Megan having an affair with Nightcrawler. If something physical happens between them at some point, I'm fine. But th this is a 
oh, I'm in love with Brian, but Brian doesn't want me. Okay, I'll go Kurt, and Kurt doesn't want me either. And it's like, she's not that conscious. It, that, that takes a level of awareness that Megan has not earned yet and will not display outside of fill-in issues written by Higgins. You know, it's weird. Yeah, I mean, this is like another instance, too, where I feel like different visualization could have... I mean, there's a surprising choice here not to draw her in her monstrous form. And I mean, I don't know whether it's time or Wozniak just didn't think of it, but that seems like the obvious place that you would go to here in terms of her struggling with rejection. And we even have the mirror, but instead it's Rachel in the mirror, which is interesting because they've had like a body swap thing before. But still, the fact that Megan is her generically beautiful self throughout this sequence while having the doubts about beauty is weird. Yeah. yeah, yeah, like, like, like she's a beautiful Barbie, you know, with a, a gazing butt shot in a, you know, in a mini dress or negligee. Like nothing about her says, oh, I. F-. And again, we know that she can become monstrous, like when she feels bad. That's like a thing that happens, but that's not happening here. All right, hmm. let's talk about nightcrawler's nightmare which again <laughs> like i'm not really i don't really I, have like some I, huge complaint I, about it it's I, just boring but go I ahead think, wayne I, I think nightcrawler's nightmare is uh his facial expressions throughout this issue <laughs> yeah. joker <laughs> yeah yeah no go, go ahead yeah <laughs> no no i don't <laughs> really I mean, like, the one thing, like, I will say, the thing of, like, him wanting to marry Amanda, I find a little bit off. Other than, so the one person that Kurt has said that he had intentions to ask to marry him was actually Rachel in X-Men Gold, um, which is odd. But, um, yeah, I don't know. That, like interpretation of Kurt as wanting to marry Amanda I find odd since he'd broken up with her prior to this so he could have married Amanda at any point like he's yeah <laughs> well and and it's you know it's presented differently but it's essentially the same dream as Megan like oh I'm a useless hideous freak to yeah. to quote Megaton man uh, yarn man <laughs> yarn man I mean hideous Megaton useless freak um <laughs> And that's um, potentially interesting, though. Like, yeah. I mean, in terms of that affinity between like Kurt right. and Megan. Like, again, right. if it was rendered a little bit differently. But 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 that doesn't play out. It's just yeah, it's it's yeah. a repetition of that theme. Yeah, I think there's a, a kind of potentially gross element too in terms of um, um, just the sequence that's created through syllogistic logic, where Amanda says no to being married. She says go to Megan. He goes to Megan. Megan says no, and then he goes to Kitty. Kitty explicitly says that we're friends, but the context there established by the previous two was romantic. And uh, I don't like that as a surfacing of like a Kurt Kitty relationship on some, you know, again, abstract level. (sighs) Yeah, I mean, I... I didn't read that into it. I mean, even as someone who's like shipped them in other contexts, I didn't necessarily read that into it, but I could see how it is a bit of a weird place to go with it. But at the same time, these are like the two female characters that like are featured in the book. So, I mean, it could be as simple as that. Yeah, but but, but you're right. It does have that three beat structure. So there's there's an implication of that because of that. Yeah. Well, it's a three beat structure where the, the beat is, look, as long as I can be with some woman. Yeah, yeah, which is yeah. Of Kurt. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the grain of that that I do find interesting is that I have talked on the podcast before that like, there's a reading of like his flirting, people sometimes want to put the word shame on Kurt. And that's something that has come up on previous episodes with, you know, some readings of the character that I haven't agreed with. And the thing about me with that 
is that I think he has insecurity, which is different from shame. And like, it's a subtle difference, but it's an important difference. And I see mm-hmm. some of his flirting and desire to be liked extending from insecurity, which is like, obviously you'd be insecure if people talk about you as a monster and try to like drive you out of town and kill you for being a monster. <laughs> like, I think that's a pretty reasonable like way to react, yeah. right? Yeah. And that's yeah. different though to me than like shame. And it's just the interesting grain of this that I'm getting back to is just that I do think some of his desire to be desired by women and even particular types of women because Kurt does seem to have a type has to do with that insecurity and I think that that's interesting to explore that's not really what's happening here it's just him going to women that he knows or like has affection for (laughs) like whether romantically or as friends and just being like hey (laughs) just having them like reject him hey girl so so contextually speaking Kitty appears in everyone's dreams where is she in this actually i mean she's not in the issue where yeah. is she continuity wise boarding school yeah okay. she yeah. got sent to boarding school so she's okay. not with the team right now okay. yeah and and she doesn't know she doesn't know that they're back on her she thinks they're lost in another dimension because she doesn't own a television you know well, okay, you know how because yeah. they're the most famous super team in britain it says so like all the time and Kitty has not picked up on the fact that they're on Earth. <laughs> gotcha. I mean, the other, just one other grain of things. I mean, if I can say, because I'm trying to like come up with stuff anyway, but like, I mean, one thing about like, I, I'd potentially be interested in like the Kitty Kurt part of the stream in the sense that, you know, her learning to accept him after initially fearing that him is such an interesting part of their relationship. So to have her reject him has an interesting kind of history and context, which again, isn't surfaced here unless you're going to bring that to it yourself, right? Yeah. That was almost 20 years ago at this point. I know. Yeah. <laughs> it was like 17 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> I know, but I always kind of think about it in the context of kind of their lives. And I mean, like, Mm -hmm. that wouldn't be so long ago for them. And like, that must be such a weird element of your friendship that would always kind of stick with you. Yeah, I mean, if that were addressed. It took took me a long time to get past Mav's hideous deformity. So, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you see, you see. But but see, now he is and we're fine, you know. I mean, but well, I mean, if we if if we turn to our timeline of of Kitty that we've used on this show, they've known each other in their timeline for if you use the yeah, slowest progression, a year and a half. Yeah. Well, no, no, she's. I mean, if she's if she's fifteen, she was thirteen when they met. So it's mm-hmm. been at least two years. And uh, if we, I mean, we know we know my feeling on there's got to be at least one more year in order for it to work out because she celebrated her fifteen her her fifteenth birthday twice. So two or three years they've known each other and they've been to hell and back literally also space you know like they're they're, love them in space yeah so like they i don't think they're there to where this doesn't make sense to be kurt's nightmare unless you do more because i also don't think kurt i don't think kurt's nightmare is at this point everyone will see me as a demon that was Kurt's nightmare when he was 12. You yeah. know, like, like mm-hmm. Kurt is like 29 uh, here. I, I remember <laughs> there was an interview with Claremont in something, one of the, oh, books I had back in the 80s that were X-Men companions, I think. And in one of those, he talked about his, his take on, on Kurt and that, you know, originally, you know, Lynn Wayne, I mean, Dave Cockham created the character, but Lynn Wayne pictured him as the typical brooding, oh, I'm a hideous, useless freak kind of thing. And Claremont said at the time he wanted to go a different direction with that because he he thought if you are born this way and you are now 20 years old you've done one of two things you've learned to accept who you are or you've killed yourself Hmm. and he wrote kurt as accepting himself you know a lot of that 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 brashness the 
the swashbuckling stuff, you know, all of that came out of he's fairly comfortable with who he is. So at this point, 12, 15 years into the character's history, him to have a nightmare about being a hideous, useless freak doesn't scan quite as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's a good way of putting it, Wayne. And yeah, like, I mean, I'll put like a finer point on my thing about insecurity too, that just the way that I think that that relates to his personality is just, he is kind of, you know, that kid who's different and puts on a lot of performances to make people Mm -hmm. like him. And that's where his like humor and everything comes from a lot too. Mm -hmm. So like, I mean, it's not that he's defined by having that insecurity in an ongoing way, but it informs a lot of kind of his identity and behavior. Yeah, the, the, the coping mechanisms he's Mm -hmm. come up with to be able to accept himself Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. for sure okay so rachel's dream is pretty simple (laughs) she just has like the thing of like she imagines being a hound again again. i know i know but the one interesting part of it is that we get her then threaded through the rest of the dreams right she's the one who's holding brian hostage in his dream she reaches through the mirror to grab megan in her dream and then we get this dream of alex's (laughs) involvement so i just don't even know like i mean i actually am interested in weird transformations and superhero comics by the time this episode comes out probably my my essay for shelf dust about world's finest 289 about batman and superman like crying and bonding by watching (laughs) slugs have sex like is probably out in the world and i love that kind of stuff to pieces i love weird super sex it's a huge draw for me in this genre this scene is not fun i don't get it I don't get why it's here <laughs> other than to be weird. If anybody wants to take a stab so, at so, it, so, please so go please, ahead. Please, be, before you do, please, Anna, for the listeners, describe this panel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we get Rachel coming in being ridden by nightmare and she's like a horse with claws and cloven feet at the back but also like human lady boobs and yeah kind of like her (laughs) hound tattoo face with like demon elf ears or horse ears or something and she looks kind of like the alex character in the humanoid horse form which i don't get the linkage that they're drawing there and nightmare is kind of like back on her back too like and it's very sexual and there's a lot going on here I don't like any of it. I'll take a shot. (laughs) I'll I'll do this one. Okay. I I guess my role here is to defend Power Pack. And again, I don't want to defend the the Higgins version of Power Pack. I said Power Pack's about, you know, kids dealing with adult things. One of the things that Power Pack deals with consistently over the 62 issues is Alex growing up. Um, He is the oldest child and he has regular heterosexual pubescent teenage boy issues in addition to being a superhero he's got a girlfriend named allison who you know it's very much you know even more so than like say the peter parker problems of girlfriend of how could i you know how do i tell gwen that i'm no it's none of that alex is really just trying to you know they never say he just wants to get into the pants of this other girl because he's in puberty but like you know kissing her and just like it's constant dates and it's all constant oh i have to go babysit my kid's sister uh and then also we have to go save the universe right like this is her his his ongoing issue and he does have issues of what you know of what does this mean to grow up and you know he wants to be an, an adult he wants to do adult things but he is very much a kid and i think what higgins wanted to do and again he is writing both books so he's crossing over with himself here i think what he wanted 
wants to do is he wants to tell his version of the dealing with puberty problems with this horse metaphor. Um, one thing that will happen, and I want to say it's in like issue 61 of Power Pack, the next to last issue, maybe 60, 61, somewhere in there. Alex becomes a horse and there is, um, it's one of the few things that I like about this part, this storyline. There is a part where Alex is hating himself for the I'm different, I'm different, I'm horrible, I'm hideous, blah, blah, blah. You know, the kinds of things that one says in, you know, like you said, the unglamorous version of the Nightcrawler story, right? Like the the not thinking it through. Alex is doing that. And you think that it's it's Higgins being a bad writer, but what's amazing about it, and it's one of the, it's the one thing that I like in this entire storyline is Franklin shows up, and the you know the Power family, Alex is hiding from his parents because they don't know he's a superhero at all, and they're not going to deal with him being being a horse. But his his siblings know, and Franklin shows up to visit, and he's like, let me let me talk to him. And Franklin's five at this point, and Alex is like, stop pitying me, go away, Franklin, you're bothering me because Alex is you know 15 and he's just going to be mean, and Frank. Franklin says to him, you know, I don't understand why you're upset. You look like you look like a, a Chimelian. The Chimelians are our friends and they're beautiful. And you're beautiful, Alex, and you're my friend. And he's this five-year-old boy and he hugs Alex and Alex feels better. And it's so cute. It's the Aww. it is it is so adorable. <laughs> and it's the one thing that, that works from that entire storyline. Because honestly, if you did suddenly turn into a horse, even if you did know horse aliens, it would be kind of traumatic. I get why it's traumatic oh, yeah. to Alex. Yeah. <laughs> like I, I get I get it. And then Franklin is just this sweet little innocent, you know, five-year-old who, you know, he's 10 years younger than Alex, but they are friends. And he says, mm-hmm. You're still my friend, Alex. I still love you. And and that's and that's all it takes, and it melts Alex's heart, and he cries, and that's how the issue ends. And it's so cute. And I think that's what Higgins is trying to do here. He's trying, like when he had that moment where where Alex deals with the, huh, Nightcrawler's kind of funny looking, and he's okay. Maybe I can have an okay life. I think he's trying to do that. He's trying to do his own version of the mutant metaphor, even though Power Pack's not mutants. And this is Rachel being a horse person here is because this isn't Rachel's nightmare. This is Alex's nightmare. And Alex's nightmare is the transformation into the horse thing. So he's seeing a reflection of Rachel as what he fears and she's coming to get him. And that's what I think they're going for. And also massive boobs because Alex is a 15 year old boy. And that's Yeah, I was gonna say, I mean, usually with horse imagery, there's like a sexual component to it, uh, for reasons. But so yeah, I was like, that could be interesting here. I don't know that it's really it's playing out and like yeah, it, yeah, and then the merging into the horse and there being like a two headed horse being ridden by nightmare, I just don't know. Well and yeah, on I'm, I'm looking at that more closely now and in that in that double page spread, like there are tendrils attaching nightmare to this rachel thing which i guess is indicating it's not actually rachel it's part of his nightmare but but yeah there are like just these weird growths attaching the two of them together so okay that that makes that even stranger <laughs> and, and, but then the ne- the next page that second panel of the next page is my nomination for best panel of the the issue that's just so ridiculous yeah, the one where they're all merged into the horse, and so the yeah. horse now has like six legs and two heads, and uh, I don't know whether it still has horse boobs, but yeah, I mean, again, I'm usually all up for the weird transformations in superhero comics, but they have to kind of be interesting, both visually and kind of narratively and i like that where you're going with it mav i think that that's like a good way of adding some meaning to what they were trying to do here but like yeah another execution issue probably yeah and i think i don't think i'm making up i think that's what he's going for i think that's yeah yeah what he and wozniak are going for it's just lost it's so lost can we talk just about because we do actually have to kind of 
think about wrapping up because believe it or not, we've actually talked about this comic book for a whole hour. Um, <laughs> but I wanted to talk about this last panel, which is like Excalibur in their sexy pajamas, sort of, but is just rendered so wild. And I just <laughs> wanted to talk about it as like a final thing. I mean, did anybody else find this a pretty wild panel? I could just like list the weirdness what... of this. It's not the last panel, but it's the last panel of the yeah. Excalibur part of the story. It's not yeah. their pajamas, it's their underwear. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, this thing only makes sense if they're rehydrating after a foursome. That's the only way. And the kid's out of town, you know. And, Kitty's the only one who's underage. So <laughs> and, and Lockheed just. Someone pointed out on our Twitter in one of the previous episodes about how Wozniak draws Lockheed super stacked, and I was like, God, I was like "Yeah, <laughs> he looks he looks very steroided out." Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> But yeah, just like Megan, not even in like a negligee, but just like in actual lingerie underwear. And like Brian with the towel, but like, what is this enormous towel? This is not what a towel looks like. And then like, it's a bed sheet. It's a bed sheet. Yeah, it is a bed sheet. And then Kurt's sitting on the counter, but he's wearing like a robe and clearly nothing else with like his legs open. Just the number of weird decisions in this panel is hypnotizing. It's just absolutely hypnotizing. <laughs> He's looking longingly at that Batman logo as well. Yeah, I know. I want to even like find charm in that. And I'm just like, why Batman though? I mean, you could have picked so many funnier yeah. things. Yeah. I I think Andrew's right. I think they all just had sex. I think it's, yeah. I, mean, I, don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't know I, how else yeah. to. <laughs> Any other final thoughts that we should address before we leave this wonderful I, issue forever I, in the rear I need, I need to go back and reread more Excalibur now. If this issue did nothing else, it made me go, yeah, you know, I should I should go back and take a look at some of this stuff because it has there been There is so a much better stuff. <laughs> yeah. So much, Wayne. Yeah, so oh yeah, no, and I, I do I remember much better stuff. <laughs> well, did you have any final thoughts you want to contribute, Andrew, before we leave this issue behind? Nope, all good. <laughs> Matt, have any final thoughts? Uh, I, I, I mean, read early Power Pack. Like, I mean, there. I actually, yeah. I, I think I could sell Anna on a lot of it once you realize. Again, it's not, it's not going to be explicit sexuality. They are children, but there is a lot going on for the the metaphor of what pubescence is, and I, I think it's very mm. interesting and. This is just not indicative of it, like yeah, at and, all. And, and then Andrew is right. The just you know, Louise's writing, uh, June Brigman's art in his earliest yeah. years is really gorgeous. You were selling me about it, like kind of the darkness of like the childhood experience that was selling me. When you were describing it, I was like, oh, that does sound good. I should yeah. read that. So maybe no, I will. It's it runs sixty two issues. Um, there's some weird stuff. There's some really weird stuff. There's Whoopi Goldberg is a cosmic entity. Is, oh yeah, is a, oh my is gosh. a thing that happens in Power Pack. And wow, if you like, it sounds like I'm exaggerating. Unless you're looking at the YouTube version of this right now, and I'm showing the picture and showing you, <laughs> no, whoop, there's a character that's just Whoopi Goldberg as a cosmic entity for reasons. For reals, yeah. I was not born to live a man's life, but to be the stuff of future memory. The fellowship was a brief beginning, a fair time that cannot be forgotten. And because it will not be forgotten, that fair time may come again. 
Okay, we will leave things there. Thank you so much for an interesting conversation about a interesting at the very least issue. Um, Wayne, if you would like people to find you online, where can they find you? And is there stuff of yours that you would like to plug? Uh, primarily, you can find me with the Vox Popcast, which I'm sure you link to on a pretty regular basis. We do. Uh, I, I have a Instagram that's mostly just my my photos. It's uh, Tetroc2012, T-E-T-R-O-C 2012. I have a blog I haven't updated in ages, but on it I've written a lot about comics uh, and various other things over the years. Uh, if you Google me, it'll come up. It's wayne-wise.com. Um, I guess plugging just real quickly, I mentioned um, in, in the bio stuff I've done, the, the main comics project I've worked on in the last few years is the Kutzpah Heroes of the Holocaust. We tell real-life stories of Holocaust survivors. I work on that with a variety of other creators there are four issues it's available on amazon it's a project i'm really very proud of it's received a good bit of acclaim you can buy copies of it at the holocaust museum in washington dc sitting on the shelf right next to mouse which makes me happy so yeah that's that's kind of it thank you thanks thanks for having me this was fun well thanks so much for joining us for this wild mm-hmm. issue and we'll definitely link the series on our twitter and on our webpage and encourage people to pick it up Next, in one week's time, we'll be on to episode 31, discussing Excalibur number 30, Twas a Dark and Stormy Night, in which Megan has new fangs and Alistair forgets Kurt's always had fangs. It guest stars Doctor Strange, and we've got someone who knows a thing or two about vampires on tap to talk to us about it. Looking forward to that one. In the meantime, if you liked what you heard, please follow us, like, and review the podcast wherever you're listening to it or watching it. Don't forget to check out our fabulous YouTube videos, which you can find via our website or the Vox Popcast YouTube channel, which you should be checking out anyway. As always, if you want to chat with us about Excalibur or pitch yourself as a guest for a future episode, let us know. You can reach out via our website, goshgollywow.com, where we've got some fun extras, and via Twitter at goshgollywow, where we post daily pages from whatever issue we're reading that week and more fun extras. Thank you, Andrew and Mav, for another not nightmarish conversation. Thank you, Wayne, for getting lost in dreamland with us. Thank you all for listening, and a special thanks to Maximilian of Thoughtform Music for our truly epic theme song. Play us out. Play us out.